All right, guys, if you have your Bibles, I'm in uh, Daniel chapter 5. If you didn't bring one, we've got some in the pew rack in front of you. Those are the New International Version. I'll be reading out of the CSB, uh, the Christian Standard Bible. Um, I switched over those translations about a year and a half ago. I know it's still messing with some people. Uh, I love you. Um, there you go. So uh, we're in the CSB, Daniel chapter 5. I'm reading from verse 1. It says, it seeks King Belshazzar held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles, and he drank wine in their presence. Under the influence of the wine, means he had a little too much to drink, uh, Belshazzar gave orders to bring in the gold and the silver vessels that his predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so uh, that the king and his nobles and wives and concubines could drink from them. So they brought in the gold vessels that had been taken from the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his nobles, wives, and concubines drank from them. They drank the wine and they praised their little g-gods made of gold and silver and bronze, iron, wood, and stone. At that moment, the fingers of a man's hand appeared and began writing on the plaster of the king's palace wall next to the lampstand, okay? So at that moment... Uh, a man did not appear. It doesn't even say a hand appeared. It says some fingers appeared and started writing some things on the wall, which is a little Stephen King. You know what I'm saying? So, so this is real life, genuinely happened in the palace, having a party, uh, lots of women, lots of wine, lots of food, and, and suddenly... Um, fingers appear. It's not a hand, just fingers. I don't know, one, two, maybe a thumb. I don't know. Maybe it's a whole, I don't know. I don't know where the hand stops. It's not an arm. Uh, definitely the, the, these phalanges, right? Uh, the phalanges are there and on full display. And, and, and so this is going on. So listen, it says, uh, as, as the king watched the hand that was writing, his face turned pale and his thoughts so terrified him that he soiled himself. My favorite verse in the book of Daniel. Uh, no, just, just in this chapter. He, so young children that don't know what that means yet. Um, soil is brown in color. And so were his pants. That's all you need to know. Okay, and, and so the king um, himself... And, and he, he just, he, I, I just said it in the early show, he pooped his pants, okay? That's what happened. That's the biblical definition of what's going on, okay? The king was freaked out and pooped his pants. And so uh, it says his knees knocked together. The king shouted to bring in the mediums, the Chaldeans, and the diviners. And he said to these wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this inscription and gives me its interpretation will be clothed in purple, have a gold chain around his neck, and have the third highest position in the kingdom. Now, remember that. I'll come back to it. I'll talk about why he's offering up the third position. Okay, uh, so all the king's wise men came in, but none of them could read the inscription or make its interpretation known to him, the king, uh, Belshazzar, became even more terrified. I don't know what happens in round two, but round one wasn't good, you know. More terrified than round one, uh, his face turned pale and his nobles were bewildered. Uh, and they said to themselves, me thinketh the king stinketh. Um, they, didn't, they didn't say that. It's just in my head. Uh, because that's the, new, that's the King James version of the Bible that floats around in my mind, in case you're ever wondering. Um, verse 10, because of the outcry of the king and his nobles, the queen came to the banquet hall. Evidently, uh, she wasn't around. And uh, it says, may the king live forever. She said, don't let your thoughts terrify you or your face be pale. Okay, 
There is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of holy gods in him. Uh, in, his, in, in the days of your predecessor, he was found to have inside intelligence and wisdom. The wisdom of the gods appointed him, uh, the wisdom of the gods. Your predecessor, King Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him the chief of the magicians, mediums, Chaldeans, and diviners. Your own predecessor, the king, did this because Daniel, the one the king named Belteshazzar, was found to have an extraordinary spirit, knowledge, and intelligence, and the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems. Therefore, summon Daniel, and he'll give the interpretation. Uh, It says, then Daniel was brought before the king. The king said to him, are you Daniel, one of the Judean exiles that my predecessor, the king, brought from Judah? I've heard that you have the spirit of the God in you, and that inside intelligence and extraordinary wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men and the mediums were brought before me uh, to read the inscription and to make its interpretation known to me, but they could not give its interpretation. However, I have heard about you that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Therefore, if you can read this inscription and give me its interpretation, you will be clothed in purple, have a gold chain around your neck, and have the third highest position in the kingdom. There it is again. Then Daniel answered the king, well, you can keep your gifts and give your reward to someone else. However, I will read the inscription for the king and make the interpretation known to him. Your majesty, the most high God, gave sovereignty, greatness, glory, and majesty to your predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar. Because of the greatness he gave him, all people's nations and languages were terrified and fearful of him. He killed anyone he wanted to, and he kept alive anyone he wanted, and he exalted anyone he wanted and humbled anyone he wanted. But when his heart was exalted and his spirit became arrogant, we talked about this last week, he was deposed from his royal throne and and his glory was taken from him. He was driven away from people. His mind was like an animal's. He lived with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like cattle and his body was drenched with the dew from the sky until he acknowledged that the most high God is ruler over human kingdoms and sets anyone he wants over them. But you, his successor, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart. Even though you knew all this, instead you have exalted yourself against the Lord of the heavens. The vessels from his house were brought to you, and as you and your nobles, wives, concubines, drank wine from them, you praised the gods made of silver, gold, and bronze, iron, and wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or understand. But you have not glorified the God who holds your very life breath in his hands. Who controls the whole course of your life? Therefore, he sent the hand, and this is the writing uh, that was inscribed. This is the writing that was inscribed, mean, mean, tekel, parson. And this is the interpretation. Mean means that God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel means that you have been weighed on the balance and found deficient. Perez means that your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Then Belshazzar gave an order and they clothed Daniel in purple, placed a gold chain around his neck and issued a proclamation uh, concerning them. He should be the third high. highest ranked ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the king of the Chaldeans, was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom at the age of 62. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Now, uh, I don't know what you think about Daniel chapter 5, but I think it is interesting. All right, it is like steeped in interestingness, uh, and and some of it's not even some of it's extra biblical. For instance, did you guys know that Daniel chapter five is the chapter of the Bible that people have used for years to try to disprove the historical accuracy of the Bible? And the reason why is because Daniel five is the only place in all of history that mentions a king named Belshazzar. 
Only place. And, and in fact, Babylonian history says that the king that sat on the throne when, when uh, the kingdom was given to the Persians, uh, that, that guy's name was uh, Nabondius. Right? That was the king that was, that was ruling in Babylon when Babylon fell to the means of the, and the person. His name was Nabondius. And so for years, that's the only name that ever, and all historians pointed the Bible and said, see, the Bible's wrong. See, the Bible's full of errors. That is until a guy named John George Taylor, a British archaeologist, uh, began excavating a, a temple to the Babylonian, uh, Babylonian moon god. And he was excavating this temple built to the Babylonian moon god and uh, up very high in the temple, uh, which, by the way, happened to be repaired by Nabondius while he was reigning. They found these four cylindrical objects up at the very top of these doors. They, 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 didn't, they just looked like they were part of the architecture until they got up there and they realized that you could open them. And when you opened them, they found writing in all four of the pots. And what the writing showed was King Nabondius had to go far away to another land for a long period of time. And when he went to a far away place for a long period of time, he made his son, guess what his name is? Belshazzar, king of Babylon. And so I just, I think the Bible's cool. Like, it's just right, right? I mean, even people that don't think it's right later get disproved. And they're like, oh, never mind, the Bible is right. So along those lines, when we talk about how the Bible is right, I want to tell you one of the things, or three of the things, the Bible is right to teach us today. And so three things I want to share with you. And here's the first lesson. And it, it, to be honest, uh, it, it, this is the primary lesson of Daniel chapter 5, guys. And it's this, is that God will not be mocked, Right? Our God is a God that will not be mocked. We just uh, covered this last week with Nebuchadnezzar, right? But God, God opposes the proud. That's what he, that's what he does. He, he opposes. The word means he, he works against. God works against the proud. And, and we even talked about the fact that as his kids, those of us that are in Christ, we've been adopted into the family of God. We become children of God. And, and that means God's for us, right? God is for us. If God is for us, who can be against us? And the answer is, well, God can because he's our dad. And, and that's what loving parents do is we oppose our children when they are stubborn and stiff-necked and head in the wrong direction. Uh, and I don't know about you guys. We got some opposing going on in our house. You know what I'm saying? And so God does that even for his kids who is for, he will oppose so that they'll end up being decent people. And, and so God opposes us when we choose to walk in pride instead of humility. He humbles us to remind us, even sometimes for seasons he will humble us, to remind us that he's the one that is in control. And so, so man, we just had this huge example in Daniel chapter 4 of what happens when you're not careful with your pride. And then Daniel chapter 5 opens with another grave error in judgment and pride, right? So, so King Belshazzar is having a party. And at this party, it says he invites a thousand of his nobles. Now, one thing you might want to know is that at this time, his city is under siege, okay? So I, I, don't, I don't know about you, but if I'm trying to win a war, I'm not throwing any parties. You know what I'm saying? So, so they're under siege, and he decides, I've got a great idea. I'm going to call uh, the, the thousand most important people uh, of the kingdom, uh, all the nobles. I'm going to bring them together in this place. And so they, you know, just whatever they'll do. So there's a, because on the calendar, it's a holiday. 
holiday. And so he decides, we're, we're, we're going to celebrate. We're going to celebrate the holiday. So he invites them. He opens up the wine. And man, the wine is flowing. And so it's all his nobles, all the, all the people of power, and then all of his wives, notice the plural, and all his concubines. So um, that's what's going down. It is probably not a um, PG-13 rated party. You guys follow me? I don't think there's a lot of child care here. And, and so, so that's kind of the party that's going on. So in the midst of the party, after he's had a little bit too much of all of the things that are at the party, uh, the food, the wine, and the women, he just says, I've got a great idea. You know what we need? You know what would make this great? It'd be really great if everybody here had a glass of gold. <laughs> Didn't we get some gold from those Judeans? Didn't we get some gold from those... Every- you know what? Go get all the stuff that was taken from the temple of those Israelites. And we're going to drink out of those. So he does. Goes and grabs all the gold and the silver goblets and they pour the wine into those and they began to drink out of those cups. And it's not just the act of drinking out of those own cups, but then has the audacity to begin to uh, praise and give thanks, not to the God of Israel, not to the one true God, but rather to their, um, their graven images. They begin to praise and worship the God of gold and the God of silver and the God of bronze and the God of wood. And, and if you know anything about idol worship, you know much of it was very licentious behavior. You know what I'm saying? I mean, a lot, lot of it was perverse. And, and so I, I don't know what you have in your mind of what's going on. But again, it is definitely not PG-13, probably not rated R, probably a little beyond that. And that's what's going on. And then it says this in verse 5. Ready? At that moment, at that moment, with goblet in hand, all of a sudden, the, the fingers show up. Stephen King shows up, and the fingers on the wall and, 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 and of a man's hand appeared and began writing on the plaster in the king's palace next to the lampstand, and uh, the king soils himself in fear. So here's my question as I read through the text. Why at that moment? Why at that moment? Because that's what it says, verse 5. At that moment, the hand appeared and began to Why at that moment? Uh, could it be that the hand appears at that moment because they have taken the sacred, which was set aside for worship, and they use it in pagan activities, right? They've taken the sacred and they've wasted it on, on temporary pleasures of the world. We don't ever do that, do we? Never. Y'all are quiet this morning. What happened? It was going well until I pointed it our way, right? And when we steered it our way, we don't ever do the... Maybe it's that. Maybe it's that they had taken the the sacred, the holy, the set apart, and they were using it to pleasure themselves, right? And maybe uh, it's because they're breaking the first and second commandments. It's kind of a big one. Have no other God before me. Don't bow down to an idol. And they've taken the the articles, the holy, and and they're they're actually bowing down to it like, like... Totally could be that, right? I read one guy this week. I thought he kind of hit the nail on the head. And he said, you know, it's probably both of those, but it may also be this. He says, you know, what the king is doing is basically mockery. David Hellman, in his commentary, um, Daniel, uh, for anyone, he says, listen, live this out, right? So the king gets the golden goblets of the God of the Israelites, and instead of, of giving him credit, he's basically toasting uh, the, the gods of gold and silver, which, which, let's face it, are man-made, and we know we're about us and what we do. And so he's, he's, he said, in essence, what the king is doing is saying, hey, look at this, I hold God in my hands. 
<laughs> now, friends, I know you're in church on Sunday, so you probably already know this lesson. We don't ever hold God in our hands. It's always the other way around, right? But that's where this king was. Man, he was mocking God. And friends, I'm here to tell you, God doesn't take that lightly. Our God will not be mocked. He does not share his glory with another. He will not be mocked. So that's probably the banner truth of Daniel chapter 5. Second big lesson we learned. And uh, I learned in English my freshman year of college that you could write any sentence any way you wanted to. And so uh, English teachers deal with this one. Ready? Um, (laughs) Three statements I'm just going to combine into one sentence. Learned that from my English teachers and from the Apostle Paul. Ah. The writing is on the wall. Our days are numbered. We have been weighed, measured, and found wanting. Right? The writing's on the wall. What does the writing on the wall tell us? Our days are numbered, and we've been weighed, measured, and found wanting. So there are three statements that um, are made in the book of Daniel that have worked their way all, all throughout the world. Right? And we, we, we say these three statements. They've, they've made their way into many conversations. Now, the first one is the writing's on the wall. Right? I mean, I mean, I mean, I should have known it. I mean, the writing was on the wall. My boss was crazy. I should have known that the whole place was going to go bankrupt. I should have known that he was a crook. I mean, the writing was on the wall. I mean, we talk about that. Like, the writing was on the wall. So we, we talk about that. We also use the phrase, uh, you, you, my, my days are numbered. Yeah? Your days are numbered. Your days are numbered at that job. Your days are numbered here. Like we, we use that phrase a lot as well. And so the writing's on the wall. My days are numbered. And then, and then there's one we don't use so much. But if you um, ever watch the movie A Knight's Tale, come on, how many people watch A Knight's Tale? Right? Okay. You've been weighed. You've been measured. And you've been found wanting. Right? I, and I believe that actually was Shakespeare also used that line, which, which came from the book of Daniel. Isn't that awesome? Came from the book of Daniel. And, and so listen. Uh, those are three sentences that we use all the time. And here's the deal. So if we um, use poor grammar like me and just make a sentence mean whatever you want to, uh, take three truths and put them all into one, you get one great, huge gospel truth in the book of Daniel that stands for generations. And here is the truth of the gospel, friends, is, is listen, uh, the writing is on the wall, Right? The writing is, is on the wall and our days are numbered. There is a day coming when God is going to judge all of the earth. Like, like it, 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 the, the writing is on the wall. The Bible proclaimed Jesus is coming back and when Jesus comes back, all of us are going to be judged. That's going to happen. And, and most of us, uh, there will be some awake when that happens. Most of us will probably be gone unless Jesus comes back soon because I'm eating ice cream and fried food like it's going out of style right now. Um, moving is stressful, I'm just saying. Just do whatever you have to do to cope, right? Um, we'll, we'll, we'll do something better later. Listen, I, I want you to see this. Hebrews 9.27 proclaims this. Ready? It says, and just as it is appointed for people to die once, and then after that face judgment, right? It's, it's, I'm not going to give you 28 yet. But, but the, the point is, like, the Bible proclaims the writing is on the wall, Right? And, and you're going to die. Like this is the writing on the wall. So there's a day that is coming that you will die and you will face judgment. Like that's the beginning parts of the gospel. Of course, we talked about this last week. The bad, that's, that's the bad news, but then the bad news actually gets worse, right? Because, because not only is there a day that is coming when we will die and face judgment, but get this, on that day when we die and face judgment, we will be weighed, measured, and found wanting. That's the gospel. That's the first half of the gospel. Is that one day we will all stand before a holy God and that holy God will look at us and none of us will be good enough. 
None, right? We'll be weighed, we'll be measured, we'll be found wanting, lacking in righteousness. So we go out in the world and we talk to people and say, hey man, let me ask you a question. Like, if you died tomorrow, like, do you think you'd go to heaven? And they're like, yeah, man, I'd go because I'm a good person. And listen to me, this is my argument about all people that say they're a good person, okay? I say, okay, so you're a good person. So would you sit down with your child and tell them everything you've ever done? Parents, anybody up for that today? Why are y'all so quiet? You got kids in here, huh? Like, nope. Yeah, sure I would. Wait, I'm in the house of God. We're talking about pride. I don't want that. Uh, And then the handwriting appeared on the pew in front of you. Um, Here's what I've learned. Been doing it 43 years now. Even the people I esteem the most, there are no good people. It's not. Every person you will meet that you think of as good has something. Something in the closet, something they're not proud of, something they wouldn't share with their kids, right? And what I'm telling you is so what we see in Daniel is a picture of the gospel as a whole. The writing is on the wall. Judgment is coming. We are going to die. And when we do, we are going to be judged and we are going to be found wanting. We're going to be found wanting. Like it's a, my, my, my version says deficient. Deficient. I'm going to die I'm going to be judged, and I am going to be found deficient. That's the gospel. Woohoo! That's actually half the gospel. Here's the second half of the gospel, and it's the good part. All right? Last thing I want to share with you. By the way, so let's let's start here. That the first half of the gospel is scary. Can I just say that? Here's the rightful response of any person that thinks they could stand before God on their own when they actually meet God. Uh, it, it's right there in Daniel 5. Soil yourself. That's it. People don't stand before God. Have y'all read that in the Bible? Like, like, like messengers of God. Angels show up and people like fall. You know what I'm Like fall at angels. Real God shows up. Like you, can't, you got no control. You got no control. Like you're wholly afraid. That's the, that's the right response. We're talking about fear. So how do you overcome fear, Right? No way you can overcome that kind of fear on your own. But here's the good news. We don't have to be afraid because Jesus is sufficient to save all who believe in him. Okay? I am deficient. Right? This is the gospel. It declares, the gospel declares, we are deficient, but Jesus is sufficient. We have been weighed and measured and found wanting. And the Bible declares the only thing Jesus was ever found wanting was you. Isn't that awesome? The only thing Jesus was ever found wanting was you. The Son of Man came to seek and save you. It's the only thing he wanted. Just to please his Father. To come in search of you and me. It's awesome. It's awesome. That's the awesome truth of the gospel. The king was full of pride. He says, look at me. God says, look at him. Look at my son on the cross who didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, who took on the very nature of a servant even to the point of death. So here's what I want to say to you. See, in a sense, the writing is on the wall. Because we know that judgment is coming, that we're all going to die, and we will all stand before God and be deficient. So the writing is on the wall in a sense. However, in another sense, 
the writing's not finished yet because you're still alive. And God's not finished with your story yet. Now, there will come a day he's going to put a period on the end of that sentence. But until he does, you are living under grace. And it is not too late to turn and to call unto Jesus. And the Bible says that anyone who believes in him will not perish, but will have eternal life. That is the promise. Anyone who calls on the name of Jesus, it says, they will be saved. We are deficient. Jesus is sufficient. And so my invitation to you, I just tell you, our hope as a church, guys, is that you wouldn't have to be afraid of judgment. See, we're talking about fear. You should be afraid of judgment. Can I just tell you? Like, I love you. Now, if you're in Christ, you shouldn't be afraid, okay? My my, my wife's grandmother loved the Lord, was raised in a a religion where they they, they taught her uh, every Sunday that she could lose her salvation, right? And and that's really hard when you're in the hospital bed and you're about to meet your maker and you're you're unsure. Uh, We believe in the eternal security of the believer, which means that if you have truly trusted Jesus and given your life to him, you are saved. There's, There's not a way that you can undo that because you fell into the grace of God, not into your own works. Okay, because when you fall into the grace of God, if you're saved by grace and not by faith, then when my faith wavers, my salvation doesn't change because it wasn't my faith that saved me. It was the grace of God that saved me. You guys following me? That's why Ephesians 2, 8, you have to read it in in the right way. For it is by grace that you've been saved through faith. Faith, the vehicle, you fall into the grace. And when your faith, like this is important, important, critical stuff. And so what I'm going to say to you is one day we're going to face judgment. We're talking about fear. You should be afraid of that day. Unless you know Jesus. And if you don't, it's not too late. It's not too late. So let me give you some application. I'll let you go. Uh, number one, first thing I challenge you to do this week, guys, is give God the glory in everything you do. Right? Give God the glory in all things. Where are my athletes at? They were here earlier. They were, they were here earlier. Like, show, like, like man, I, I, I love me a good touchdown celebration. I really do. Uh, but, you know, my coaches are like, act like you've been there before. Uh, let me go a little further. Uh, you don't have a single talent that the Lord didn't give you. And what the Lord giveth, he can taketh away. Right? And so I, I, just, I, I just think it's important. In everything we do, we need to give God the glory. And so uh, I love you guys, and you guys are so awesome. And we have a church of encouragers. And uh, very often, I'll have two or three people on a Sunday morning after a message come and go, oh, Pastor, it's a really, really good message. And you hear the same thing from me. And I don't want you to think that I'm just, like, appeasing you. or Like, I, I say the same thing to all the time. But I say the same thing because of this principle. I'm going to say, yes, God is very gracious because he is because I'm an idiot, right? And I come in on Thursday and I'm like, Lord, it's been a crazy week and here's your word. I don't know what to do with it. Ah, I'm going to stand for the people. And, and he just is gracious and he just pours. Not, and I'm like, thank you, Jesus. And I go home and I sleep well on the weekend because God was so gracious on Thursday uh, in my prayer closet, right? And so that's kind of how that works. And so you're going to hear that same thing from me. What I'm saying to you, that should be our response in everything, right? We have to get past that mentality. How many of you are guilty of saying it? I got this. Come on, who's guilty? I'm not the only one who says that in life, right? I got this. Man, we got this as a fan. Oh, man, we got this. No, we don't. We ain't got nothing. That's a fallacy. You are dreaming and you think you got, I don't have anything the Lord's hand hasn't given to me. And I have to get out of this place where I'm stealing the glory of God saying, I've got this in my ability, in my knowledge, in my experience. I can do this. I cannot do this. But Jesus can. I can do this because of Christ. 
Ephesians 4.13, I can do everything. By the way, that doesn't mean I can jump the highest. Ephesians 4.13 means I can suffer the most because of Christ. That's the context of Ephesians 4.13, athlete letter jackets. Um, Philippians, that's what I said. Oh, when I say Ephesians? Yeah, Philippians 4.13. Yeah, Philippians 4. Thank you. Hey, give me a little pound. Fist bump. There we go. It's, it's right here. Look at it. Look, it's right, it's right there. Philippians 4.13. Um, I can do all things, right? So we got to give God the glory in everything we do. Got to, got to. Okay, second thing. Ready? Um, ooh, almost didn't say this, but it needs to be said. Okay. I know that on your own, you're not enough. Okay. Uh, Hope and I had a t-shirt company for a little while. We made shirts. Uh, one of my favorite shirts says you are enough. And it, because it's important, because we live in a world where people never, you know. Anyway, so it says you are enough. And then, uh, so people can read it when they see you coming. And then when you look in the mirror, it says it backwards. So that when you look in the mirror, you, you remind yourself, oh, I'm enough. Right? That's only true in Christ. <laughs> okay? In Christ, I am enough. Absolutely. But hear me, without him, I'm deficient. I'm deficient. And, and, and some of us, again, this whole, I got this mentality, some of us forget this. And we walk out in the world not being clothed in Christ, right? Like, we're not clothed. We're, we're walking out half naked in spiritual warfare and going, oh. And, and we, I got this. I don't have this. I'm losing. I'm failing. I'm getting hit with flaming arrows, right? My faith is struggling because I'm not getting dressed. I'm not clothed in Christ. So listen, listen. On my own, I need you to hear me. I am completely 100% deficient, bankrupt. That is our identity. We, we need to know that about ourselves, right? I need to know that when I'm out in the world walking around in my flesh, right? Galatians 5. When I'm following my flesh, I need to know that I'm not pursuing Christ and I'm more likely to sin. Because on my own, there is no good in me. And if you have lied to yourself and convinced yourself that you can do it on your own, let me just tell you, first of all, that's a miserable Christian life. Amen? Bunch of, bunch of failures in here. Right? I mean, a whole bunch of failures. Trying, trying to do the Christian walk on your own is misery. Never felt worse about yourself, have you? Right? Just be holy as I'm holy. Well, you can't do that unless you're clothed. I can't do that unless I'm prayed up in the spirit. I can't do that unless I'm saturated in the word. I can't do that if I don't walk out with my shield of faith. I can't do it if I didn't put on the helmet of salvation. I can't do it if my, my feet aren't fitted with the gospel of peace. Like I, I can't go out and do those things on my own. See, on my own, I'm deficient. Don't fool yourself and think that you can do it on your own because you will walk out half naked into a world where there's an enemy trying to attack you and you're going to be French toast. It, like the way I cook it, burnt and all nasty. It's not going to be good. Okay? Know that you're not enough on your own. Last one, this is the good stuff. But know that Jesus is enough for you. Okay? So even though I'm deficient and I am and you're deficient, and you are. He is sufficient. Jesus is sufficient for you, for all of you, for all of you. He's not just, now some of you, let's be honest, some of us have allowed Jesus to be sufficient for just our spiritual compartments. (laughs) Come on. I'm the only person that ever tried to compartmentalize Jesus. Come on. Anybody? Like two people. Anybody, a little head shaking at least. Yeah, Pastor, I've been to amen every once in a while. I ain't going to kill you, okay? 
saying, this is rough, you little quiet crowd this morning. Ah, like, listen, Jesus is not just enough for my church life. He's not just enough for my religious behavior. He's not just enough for me to be a better, better person, whatever that is. Jesus is enough for my work life. He's enough for my marriage. He's enough for my parenting skills. He's enough for the hardship I face. Jesus is enough on the good days when I'm on the mountain, and he's enough when I'm eating leftovers from the ravens. Jesus is sufficient for me. In in my strength, when I've got it, and in my weakness, when I feel like all is gone, Jesus is sufficient. And hear me, here's the key, here's the switch. I'm deficient all the time. So I need him when? All the time. We got to stop flipping the Jesus switch. Got to. We got to start living like he's the sufficiency of all we have at all times for all sake. Okay? That's where we got to get to. Everybody got it? This is yes. This is no. This is where we in Daniel chapter 5 or what? I'm not sure. Okay. All right. Pray with me this morning. Father, thank you for your goodness and your love and your grace. Uh, I just want to pause for a minute, Lord, and in this kind of room, just, uh, just got to believe there's somebody here that needs you right now. Somebody here right now, this very moment, by the power of your Holy Spirit, they have recognized maybe for the first time how deficient they are. But they've heard that you're enough for them. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Just a show of hands. How many of you, that's your message. You need that. Jesus is enough for me. Just raise your hand. And Jesus is enough for me. He's completely sufficient for everything. That's what I need. How many of you are here and you've never, ever trusted Jesus before? Anybody? I've never put my faith and trust in Christ. Would you raise your hand? That's a bold thing to do. I've never put my faith and trust in Christ. Okay, listen. You can have your heads bowed again. But if that's you and you raise your hand, I need you to know there is a day coming. The writing's on the wall. There will be judgment. And you will be found deficient. You need Jesus. You need him. You need to ask him to come into your heart. You need to ask him to be the king of your life. You're going to need him. Jesus is the only way we can stand before God in right relationship. And so if you've never done that before, this is how we do that. We do that with a prayer around here. I just want you to pray this prayer with me, okay? Say, dear Jesus, today for the first time I realize I'm not good enough on my own. And when I get judged... I'll be found lacking. But Jesus, you are not lacking anything. Come be the king of my life. Take control of me. I'm going to get off of your throne. (laughs) Save me today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.